Welcome back to Taken by the Sea, by John Rosetta. We thank you for joining us for part two of chapter one, The Moment I Had It All. If you're enjoying this podcast, we ask that you rate us highly on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. We now rejoin William and Marcus as they attend a luxurious ball thrown by the Earl of Margate. There was a freshness in the air that greeted us as we stepped out of the carriage. The sun was setting behind the great house, giving the entrance a shadowy glow, with a dynamic sky as an elegant backdrop. It was in moments such as these that I understood my grandfather's lust for societal ambition. That understanding was only reinforced as we entered the main hall. The immaculate room was filled with the well-dressed gentry of Kent, and even those from London who dared to venture into the wilds of the country. The gentlemen were wearing their finest summer formal wear, with some of the more eclectic spirits opting for colourful patterns over traditional tones. The ladies were a spectacle of elaborate dresses, exotic impractical hairstyles, and detail accessories. Their appearance was no doubt the result of endless hours of thought, preparation and worry. The room itself was an enclosed courtyard, which included detailed architecture, highlighted in those moments by the setting sun. It was a fittingly audacious setting for what was essentially a venue for societal matchmaking that often took no notice of the thoughts or dispositions of those being matched. This was the unspoken understanding of all in attendance and in many ways, the true price of admission. This was an obligation that made me uncomfortable, but I no doubt was in the minority. As Marcus and I made our entrance, I could feel several sets of eyes moving in our direction. We were perhaps not the greatest prizes in terms of our social standing, However, I'd like to think we cut as dashing a figure as any in the great hall that evening. About time you lads made an appearance. A voice came from behind us. It was Henry, now firmly a member of the aspired class. He didn't have the intellect of his younger brother, but for all that he lacked, he made up for in humour and looks. Despite several notable childhood pranks of which I was the victim, I generally liked him, and he had always been generous to me in every way that mattered. At least it looks like you managed to put yourselves together properly. Did you need to dress each other? This from the man who hasn't dressed himself since his wedding day, Marcus replied. Slander, baseless slander. Henry shouted with less enthusiasm than those words demanded. I can firmly vouch for that, came a friendly voice. It was Elizabeth, Henry's wife, and the one truly responsible for our invitations. We all greeted each other accordingly, and I couldn't help but notice that her eyes never turned to me. She was an intelligent woman, who was only a few years older than us, and had done her best to do less frowning as of late. I hadn't seen her for some time, and I thought that she might be getting more beautiful with age. All of these were rare qualities among the British aristocracy in my experience, although I'm sure that exceptions do exist. I generally liked her, however. I suspected that her feelings towards me hovered somewhere on the border of indifference and obligation. She eventually did smile at me and was more than polite. Despite that, I could tell that her attention was completely on Marcus. If you can manage to fix your shirt within the next 20 seconds, there is someone who I would like you to meet, she said to him. He nervously began to adjust himself as he was taken by the arm and led away. With an expression that resembled a smirk, Henry put his hand on my shoulder and guided me in the other direction. William, I wouldn't want you to get near any of that dramatic nonsense, he laughed. If they're not busy eating and drinking, they're plotting next season's weddings. Seems to have worked out for you, I'd say. 
To a well-meaning but uninformed observer like yourself, it would appear so, he said with a bit of weight in his voice. They make use of me in different ways, to be sure. We're all just well-dressed pawns when it comes down to it. He was being a bit flippant, but I could tell that there was underlying frustration that lay just below the surface. Chess isn't my game, but I do know that sometimes a pawn can become a king, I replied. Not in this game. I had hoped for a laugh. Instead, he shook his head as he handed me a drink. He spoke softly and paused. I quickly decided to change the subject. Marcus mentioned that you're to set sail for the Cape soon? Yes, Henry replied with awkward enthusiasm. I'm off to help with a few of the Earl's shipping interests. Should be quite the adventure. It occurred to me that his excitement might be related to the resentment that I had detected earlier. I decided to keep that thought to myself. Have you ever thought of going to Africa, Will? I'll leave that to adventurers like yourself. I'd be quite happy to never step foot beyond England. Henry might have offered me a place beside him on his journey if I had responded differently. If he was disappointed, it didn't show. Let me show you something. Something exotic, brought from the wild places that you'll never see. I expected to see a flower or a bird, as the Earl of Margate was known for such collections. He led me through the crowd and around a few corners, and to my surprise we came upon a dark-skinned girl with flowers in her hair, and a short skirt made from a plant I'd never seen. She was surrounded by a tight circle of onlookers, and was dancing before them, as someone played an accompanying drum out of sight. With long dark hair, piercing eyes and an elegant gentleness, she was enchanting. She was like no other person I had ever seen. Her smile was constant and flawless, but the more I looked at it, the more it felt like a mask rather than a reflection. Feast your eyes, ladies and gentlemen. A weathered man with a wild moustache addressed the crowd. A princess from the wild jungle islands of the South Seas. The showman continued. I could not listen. Her eyes screamed in pain, as if the tiniest flinch would betray her efforts of composure. The crowd around me uttered all sorts of things to one another. She's grotesque. She must have just gotten here. They always die so quickly outside their habitat. Imagine how uncivilized they must be. Henry didn't contribute to any of their conversations, but I could tell he didn't share the dismay I was feeling. This poor princess was nothing more than an oddity to gawk at, to the assorted onlookers. They looked upon her as an inferior curiosity, much like the caged lion on display last autumn. The spectacle disturbed me, and I wondered how many others felt the same way. As my mind wandered, Henry had begun talking to a few acquaintances, which provided me with the opportunity to slip away. I glided through the gala, doing my best to be seen, but not talked to. The sun set and everyone gravitated towards the main ballroom. Illuminated by countless candles, the group dances with the ever-changing interchange of partners provided hints of risque to the participants and the members of high society watching every step. I reunited with Marcus, who had been unsuccessful with the introductions provided to him. He didn't give me much of a chance to tell him I didn't want to dance, perhaps wisely so. As unmarried men, it was practically a requirement for us to participate. It could have been the music or Marcus's infectious enthusiasm that allowed me to enjoy myself more than I normally would. I smiled, spun and held hands with countless partners as the music swirled around us endlessly. Those moments where there is nothing in your mind but joy are indeed rare. When the music did finally stop, all at once the dancers realized this was their chance to claim whomever had caught their eye as a potential partner. 
I glanced around the floor, avoiding the eyes of several, before I once again glimpsed the Princess of the South Seas. Her smile was gone, and away from the discriminating inspections of the English, she appeared to be withering away. For the second time, I wondered about the circumstances that led to her presence here. I doubted that she had knowingly volunteered. If she was a princess, her kingdom was a world away, and she must have known deep in her heart that she would never see it again. For reasons I only now understand, I felt overcome by sadness for this poor girl and the bleak future ahead of her. I decided to leave the ballroom, inconspicuously, rather than explain the expressions written on my face. I stepped out onto the promenade, where the chill of the early evening was most welcome. It was a breezy moonlit evening, with the moonlight outshining the glow from the candlelit interior of the manor. The music from the orchestra could still be heard clearly, but otherwise I was alone on the large stone terrace. Or so I believed. As I began to walk to the edge, two pieces of paper on the ground caught my eye. Upon inspection, they were two halves of a ripped dance card. The card was empty, just like my own. I told myself that my card was empty by choice and preference. This was a convenient and practiced lie that I told myself to avoid the reality that no one was clamoring to dance with me. Whether this particular card was empty and ultimately torn for the same reason is a topic of which I have debated in the many years since. It was then that I heard a quiet sobbing from somewhere close. I peered out over the stone banister to see a woman with curly brown hair crying alone on a bench below. Without giving myself time to think, I did something very out of character. With the torn card still in hand, I walked down to sit next to her. As I sat down, it occurred to me that she probably wasn't looking for company or polite conversation. At the very least, I thought I could provide some kind of temporary distraction. I have a feeling this might be yours, I said, handing her what was left of the dance card. She looked at me with a mix of disbelief and confusion. She then took the card from my hand, tore it into even smaller pieces and tossed them into the air. Thank you, she said coldly. Would you like to rip up mine as well? Yes, I think I would. I handed her my dance card, and soon that also became confetti before my eyes. Do you feel better now? I asked. She wiped the tears from her eyes and looked at me again, this time with some appreciation mixed in with her other emotions. Marginally, yes. She smiled a little. It's just a silly game, you know, I told her. Just a silly game where superficial people try to impress other superficial people, with the goal of populating the world with more superficial people. She nodded, but this didn't seem to provide humor or comfort to her. Maybe so, she admitted. But an empty card is still worth a cry, is it not? I was being a bit hard on her, especially for someone I'd just met. As my mother often told me, I was showing a bit too much of myself, too soon. Not sure if you noticed before you destroyed it, that my card was empty as well. She looked at me again and I couldn't help but be fixated on how the tears on her face reflected in the moonlight. You're sweet, awkward and slightly offensive, but sweet. We looked at each other for a moment, and as my eyes adjusted to the darkness around us, I noticed more and more how beautiful she was. My name is William. William Harris. Mary Dobson. She introduced herself as we politely shook hands. The truth is, I used to love these evenings. She sighed. But now, William Harris, I must warn you that you are in the presence of a social pariah. And why is that? I laughed. In this world, as a widow, 
I am the lowest of the low, someone to be set aside in favour of younger, less experienced options. In that moment I realised why her name was so familiar. It had been all over the papers. A house fire in Essex had claimed the life of a man and a small child. Mary had escaped unharmed. The columnists, of course, took no pity on her, and speculated endlessly about whether the fire was staged to cover a crime of passion, or for the insurance policy that had been recently filed, or various other baseless accusations. I'm so sorry, was all I could say. She looked as though she had heard that a few too many times. No, please don't be. I'm sorry I'm not at my best. I thought it would be fun to enter this world again. But you can't go back. That's something no one tells you. You can't go back. Call me a romantic or a fool. Many have. I took her by the hand and led her up the stairs towards the ballroom. We were about halfway across the terrace when she stopped me. I can't go back in there. I won't go back in there. She looked incredible in the candlelight shining through the windows. Beautiful, of course, but strong and fierce in a way that I had never seen before. It's their loss, I said, as I took both of her hands in mine. We danced alone on the terrace, as the echoes of the orchestra and the moonlight swirled around us. There are moments in life that you wish could last forever, and that was one of them. It was in that moment that I had it all. I was as rich as any man, as inspired as any poet. No matter how my life would change, I would always have that moment. As the song ended we drew closer to each other. I knew it wasn't right to kiss her, but there was nothing either of us wanted more. Will, Marcus shouted. I was preparing to be furious with him, until I saw the look on his face. Something was terribly wrong. Will, it's your father. You have to come quickly. I turned back to Mary to make a quick but graceful exit. She didn't give me the chance to speak. Go, please, she said quietly. I'll see you again. Without a second thought, I ran off to a waiting carriage running further and further away from that perfect moment. It's hard to believe that these memories were not so long ago, as I sit here in this damp jail cell, waiting for my fate. The beautiful person that I danced with on that night now stands outside my cell trying to be supportive, as the hours left in my life dwindle. Will, are you even listening? I'm trying to tell you something. I moved towards her into the light. I had been avoiding it. I didn't want her to see what this place had done to me. I'm sorry. I'm not at my best. This concludes Chapter 1 of Taken by the Sea by John Rosetta. In our next episode, we will be bringing you a discussion of this chapter, as well as a preview of Chapter 2. Please don't forget to tell your friends and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Taken by the Sea.